and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guests for this episode are Jesse Donaldson and Erica Dick, the authors of The Acid Room, The Psychedelic Trials and Tribulations of Hollywood Hospital. The Acid Room was a finalist for the 2023 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. On this episode, Jesse and Erica talk about the research that went into The Acid Room. They also talk about the role that psychedelics can have and the evolution of harm reduction in BC. Here's my conversation with Jesse and Erica. Who are you? And maybe Erica, if you want to go first. <laughs> yeah, who are you, Erica? Sure. Oh, gosh, that is a hard question. Um, well, my name is Erica Dick. I'm a, I'm a historian and a counter research chair at the University of Saskatchewan in the Department of History. And for over 20 years, I have been studying the history of psychedelics. But I think even more than, you know, my gravitational pull towards psychedelics as a fascinating topic, I'm really interested in the sort of history of science and culture that exists just beneath the surface. So things that happen sort of at the edges of the underground or in the black market a little bit, and sometimes they pop up into the, we'll call it the white market or into the legal spaces, but often dip back down. And so I'm interested in those kind of shadow spaces that, uh, and, and how our ideas about health and medicine and trust in science sort of take hold in those spaces. Awesome. It was cool that there was to see the Saskatchewan connection because I first um, kind of read about Saskatchewan's acid trials in um, Helen Humphrey's book, Rabbit Foot Bill. Oh, yeah. That was kind of my first introduction to it. So it was neat to kind of see that pop up in uh, mm -hmm. in the acid room as well. Okay, Jesse, who are you? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> um <laughs> I mean, I guess like uh, where Eric and I overlap is that, you know, I have some a similar interest in in the sort of underground parts of parts of things. But backing up, um, I'm uh, an author and a historian uh, and a former journalist and uh, uh, I work in television now, but uh, I've always just had a, an interest in um, in history and particularly like like Eric is saying, you know, the the bits that are on the edges, um, the stuff that we don't hear about as much um the weirdos the you know the people who exist maybe outside of mainstream history textbooks or you know books or things like that uh and i've written four books with anvil press uh about uh local history vancouver bc uh you know and, and british columbia as well um and that's typically the focus is is you know trying to make these things accessible and trying to speak to things that we haven't heard as much about maybe so far and i think that what's cool about writing in the local history space is that there's a lot more runway to do that you know if you were writing about bigger world events or you know even even national events there's a lot of those things have been pretty extensively covered by a lot of a lot of other folks much smarter than me but what's cool about the local spaces is that there's just so much that's still undiscovered and so many stories that we can tell and so many links that we can draw that nobody else has really done before maybe because nobody cared to or it wasn't maybe masochistic enough to spend the time doing it but either way it's just an opportunity to to look into these into these places that just haven't been haven't had a light shone on them yet 
which is fun and exciting. Yeah. I wondered if we could start a little bit for those, uh, for our listeners who maybe haven't read The Acid Room, haven't seen it on a bookstore shelf. Could you describe the book a little bit? And maybe Jesse, if you want to start and then Erica, if you, if there's anything you want to add. Yeah. Uh, the Acid Room is a book about early psychedelic research in British Columbia and Saskatchewan uh, and the cast of interesting sometimes wacky sometimes unsavory sometimes brilliant characters who engaged in the forefront of that research at a time when nobody really knew what they were dealing with um and it's also the stories of people who went through a program at a place called hollywood hospital where they were given psychedelic drugs as a way of um helping them deal with various personal issues and originally it started as as being for alcoholics, but it quickly grew into a way for people to deal with repressed trauma or um, childhood issues or adulthood issues and um, became something quite exceptional before the heavy hand of prohibition came down and um, stopped that research for a number of years. It's kind of a capsule synopsis, but it's most, it's more about the people and uh, the, the craziness that ensued. Did I get it, Erica? <laughs> As usual, Jesse's done a, a great job of describing it. And I, I think well, the only thing I would add is that, you know, there is a bit of an origin story to how we we came together to to write this book. And maybe if it's OK, I'll share that part. Um, you know, Jesse reached out to me. I think it was on Zoom. It was during the pandemic. And uh, we realized that both of us were sort of pulling together our resources to write this history, but we were both kind of locked in space as well during these lockdowns and archival closures and whatnot. But fortunately, I had collected a bunch of stuff from the BC archives prior to the pandemic, and Jesse had the energy and all these local stories that I was I was really sort of waiting to get back to Vancouver to sort of comb through local archives. And we decided to go take a chance and write a book together, having never met each other in three-dimensional ways, you know, we would only see each other on Zoom and had a few phone conversations. And it was, it was a fantastic decision. Uh, it really brought this book to life. And it took what was a really an incredible group of patient stories that we had. And then we were able to sort of knit that together with some of the local context to bring out these three-dimensional aspects of these characters um, while we both worked in situ. And uh, it was, it's, was really quite an incredible process of pulling that together and learning from one another, both about communication styles, but also as we deepened the history and tried to put flesh on some of these numbers that had otherwise existed describing the story. It's a pretty amazing book because I mean, it's just like a thin little, it's, it's we, but it (laughs) it feels so rich. Like it's such a rich book and you can just tell how much we're, research is sitting behind every single sentence like that's the kind of reading that it is it's like this is not this is not easy work I mean it its side is its size is so deceptive because it's just like it feels so much bigger um it helps to have a co-author who's been looking at something for 20 years um 
I can definitely not take much credit for that, but uh, <laughs> Erica, you know, would constantly be sending me things that I just didn't even know existed. There was a, you know, a real shorthand with her. She'd be like, Oh, have you read this? Or have you heard of this person? You know, when I would be blundering my way through something and, and it was just, yeah, there's, there's a lot there and it's, yeah. She'd but... see Erica's office. There's a lot of stuff on those shelves. <laughs> Um, it looks yeah. very tiny, Erica. <laughs> yes, I'm only showing you parts of it. Um, there's more books over here, but um, you know, I think that on the flip side of that, Jesse, it was it was you. One of the other nice things about working during a pandemic is, you know, we resorted to this new technology that prior to the pandemic I'd never used, like a simple Google document. So we're working on the same page at the same time, and I could see how you were able to keep the forest in view while I was describing the trees. And that partnership was really, I think, um, you know, I learned so much from that process and and I, I really treasure that. Your capacity to sort of see this the story as I was fixated on these details that I had been combing through for, you know, two decades. Um, so yeah, I think I think it really did come together in a in that seamless way. Yeah. And it well, actually, like we didn't even fight, I don't think. I mean, uh, yeah, I, d I didn't think so. If you'd been like, "Oh, we were fighting about something," I would have, I would have been like, "Wow, I'm, uh, that, I totally missed that." <laughs> it really right. miraculously There's... seamless. <laughs> That's right. Well, we'll get in a fight on the next book. That'll be fine. Yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll earmark no it. More. <laughs> yes. Um. It. Yeah. It's funny because writing, you know, like you I mean, obviously, you, Erica knows this too. That you know, writing a book is is a very solitary thing, usually, right? Like, I mean, you're you're talking to a few people here and there, but nobody's really in it in the same way that you are. And often, you know, times you have to, you're trying to explain it to people who are pretending to, to care because they're just, they just don't know it on the same level that you do until you, until you, you know, until it's published. And so it was a really awesome, especially during, during COVID when things felt pretty isolated already, it was just nice to be able to talk to somebody who, you know, cared as at the same level and be able to sort of nerd out on little details. And, and, you know, that was, I was like, oh, wait. Why have I not written a book with somebody before? This is way, this is way better. <laughs> I, I mean, I feel like I have to ask about Pink Floyd too, because the two of you both reference Pink Floyd lyrics in your acknowledgments. I don't know if you coordinated that, uh, but it was, I was like, oh, there's something here. So, okay. What is it about Pink Floyd? What was happening with the two of you that this intersected? Um, I'm not even sure I remember why I think. Yeah, I think it's in the acknowledgement section. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, all the um, chapters are all the chapters are named after, uh, you know, songs from Dark Side of the Moon as well, which was just, I don't know, intended to be, I think maybe I was going a little loopy being <laughs> alone and during COVID and thought it would be funny to play on the notion that, you know, there's people out there who are, you know, like, oh, yeah, if you if you watch Alice in Wonder or not Alice in Wonder if you if you watch um if you watch the Wizard of Oz and you put on Dark Side of the Moon while you're doing acid it'll all line up and it was this sort of urban legend which um it seemed kind of funny to put in there as an easter egg to see if anybody ever ever noticed so <laughs> it's good that somebody did <laughs> we didn't do that as a you know pretext to determine whether or not we could write the book together <laughs> No, I, I, yeah, I think it just probably, I think it just sprung out of, out of an in-joke that then, and I think we, because I mean, we both wrote those acknowledgements independently of one another. And I think we may have both just been like, oh, you, you included that in there too. Nice. Okay. All there, right. We're uh, on the same we way. Definitely, I definitely uh, riffed off of it after I saw yours as well. So 
Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think part of it too is that one of the things that we often found ourselves talking about or, and sort of dealing with is the reputation that psychedelics have had for so long. And I think Pink Floyd is a good avatar for just like a quick way of bringing people into that space that, you know, this was a time when, you know, I think we we both grew up at a time when psychedelics were, you know, according to public health advertisements, you know, they were bad. They were going to ruin your brain. They were going to like turn it into scrambled eggs or something. Yeah. You're going to um, have flashbacks for the rest of your life. I yeah. remember that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yet like cool musicians and cultural icons were also espousing them in different ways. So this kind of mixed messaging and like, who do you trust? Who do you believe? And I think some of that some of that tension we hope kind of pulls through the book about, you know, these different people who are jockeying for the upper hand in terms of a psychedelic world that is in flux. And mm. so P- Pink Floyd is a nice way of kind of weaving that through, at least for our generation. Yeah, exactly. As that sort of, as it peaked out into the public sphere at a particular time. And I mean, yeah, there's, I think Eric had mentioned something that's that we talked about a lot, which was sort of the tension between the two sides of the psychedelic research movement at the time you know on the one side you had um you know the al hubbards and the timothy learys these people who were you know larger than life characters people who were playing pretty fast and loose with um with the tools that they had and then on the other side you had humphrey osmond and people like that who were academics and researchers and were really getting quite nervous about what might happen Uh, and then they turned out to be right about that because you know the the there was one side that was just sort of fomenting this moral panic that was inevitably going to boil over. And then the folks like Humphrey Osmond and, and you know, the researchers, they they were really worried about that happening. And they were right to worry because that's exactly what happened. And so trying to find places where, uh, you know, acid and, and its research sort of popped up in the public sphere was really important. And it's funny to watch how these things changed over time because early on these things, you know, there was people writing about, uh, LSD therapy and that in newspapers in a way that is so different from how you would even hear it talked about now, right? When those conversations are still very emotionally polarized, whereas, you know, back in the forties and fifties, people were, you know, there was articles in the Vancouver sun where people were, you know, a guy would go and be like, Oh yeah, I, you know, I did psychedelic therapy and, you know, here's what happened and describing it in, in very, um, very different language than we would now. And I found that having not researched this for, for, 20 plus years, I found that just absolutely fascinating to just sort of find the moment where that all started to change. It's interesting, too, because we're at a point where, you know, it is changing again, some very slowly, um, and we can see the language around it changing, we can see attitudes changing. But, you know, it's it's how do you how do you work against all that that moral panic, like we all still, I still remember so much of that stuff that was told to me as a kid about acid. And, and it, it's the same with so many drugs where we've dealt with that with, with pot for a long time too. And, and so it's interesting to see that it's changing, but how do you deal with that moral panic that's existed for so long? Mm-hmm. That's Erica's job. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, I I think one example of how that affected us in the book was the access to these records in the first place. So I I started this research in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when I really I started my PhD in 2001 on the topic of psychedelic experimentation, most of the, the Saskatchewan stuff. And, you know, I was driving my Tercel across the prairies, you know, <laughs> interviewing people who had 
who had taken Sandoz LSD in the 1950s. And, you know, and some of them, you know, you had to kind of get through some hoops before they would even open up and talk to you just to get permission to talk to them and then get them to talk about these experiences. And there was still very much a very heavy stigma. At that time, the Hollywood hospital records were not in the archives. No one had donated them there. They, as far as we knew, they didn't exist. And it took some time and it took a kind of thawing of that uh, attitude before people are starting to now sort of come out of the woodwork and some people now in their 80s and 90s. And uh, those records are, I think, a part of the remnant of that thaw, that early thaw that allowed for these records to get into places where we could take a look at them. Um, And I was fortunate that an archivist there knew that I was interested in this and I got the phone call, you know, the records are here. (laughs) I tailed it to Victoria and scanned a bunch of these patient files and was just sort of blown away by the richness and the variety that existed that very much was, was very different from the stories that we were able to until that time collect about that hospital, much of which was just a few snippets in the newspapers. And there wasn't a real, you know, there wasn't a sense of the history of Hollywood Hospital. There was even a lot of mystery shrouding, you know, its name or, you know, who they had on staff or whether they were getting their supplies. And what we found in those records really helped us to get a more accurate and a deeper appreciation for what was actually going on behind these walls in New Westminster, which not being from Vancouver, but now with Jesse's help, I realized is not in Kitsilano. You know, this wasn't even the place where you would expect for the psychedelic clinic to exist. It's sort of off the beaten path. And I, so that just added to the allure of, you know, our interest in this this story that took place. And again, this kind of place where you didn't expect it to take place. Yeah. And I think um, to the the to the question in general, right, like how does one counteract the sort of potential for moral panic when we're talking about, you know, psychedelics or drug use at all? Um, I mean, I think that was sort of the the point of the book, right? Like that's essentially what the book is trying to do is to try, you know, and now that the fingers are slightly out of the ears for a lot of people, uh, it's it was an attempt to demystify and destigmatize some of that stuff as best we can. And I mean, I was saying this earlier, but a lot of the conversations around any sort of human vices, like be it, you know, be it uh, where they overlap in the public sphere being uh, sex work or or drug use. Um, those are always very emotionally polarized conversations for a lot of people. And I think that mostly reflecting entrenched positions or because you saw that ad that said, this is your brain on drugs when you were a kid and you, you know, it generated an emotional response and um, sort of trying to counteract that. It, it, the only way that I think is really workable is, is through telling individual stories, you know, without, you know, generalizations, but looking at specific individuals mm-hmm. and how these things affected them. And I mean, the, the psychedelic research programs that took place in Canada were tremendously beneficial and the research was so interesting and so promising. And I mean, it, it, was, it didn't work for everybody. Of course, it depends on, you know, your own baggage, where you are in your life and that, and, and, but so it was very helpful for so many people in this time before those conversations were so emotionally charged. And so I think for us, it was a really great opportunity to just put forward a point of view um, about this sort of thing and be like, okay, like this is not necessarily bad. And Mm -hmm. like, we're going to just show a situation where this was actually very helpful to a lot of people and, you know, change people's lives in a very, very meaningful way. And, 
you know, there's just so much, there's only so much you can do with data, right? It's like, you know, you can tell people that, you know, psychedelic drugs are the safest drugs there are. You can, you know, you can, you can point to a lot of data points, but it's really, I think only when you start to see it through the lens of individuals um, and through their stories with beginnings, middles and ends um, and emotional stakes that I think people's opinions can start to change. Right. Like that's where we get out of the realm of sort of academic abstract argument and more into just reality and like accessible moments that you can recognize. And I think that's the sort of thing that books and, and movies can do really well, right. Is take those points and frame them through characters. And, and in this case, these are real people, which is very helpful uh, in, in this case, but that was just like, in terms of reading these patient stories, like to me, that was kind of, what made the book wor worth writing was being able to take a collection of individual stories and sort of try and parse them out. And like looking through some of that stuff was just so mind blowing because, you know, we're looking at things in the forties and fifties when the world was, um, you know, a little bit more people were dealing with more intense versions of the social pressures we deal with now. And, you know, looking, but looking at the things, you know, like the roles of women in society or, you know, people dealing with questions about their own sexuality or their sexual orientation or preference or, you know, gender identity, things like that, that we just don't really think of that much when we think about the fifties, you know, like when people are were wandering around in this, like leave it to beaver era, um, like how difficult that would be for people who weren't, didn't feel like they conformed to that. And so like watching people deal with this stuff and, uh, you know, in these psychedelic research sessions and coming to some conclusions you wouldn't expect of people from the fifties. It just sort of shows the power of that therapy and it just makes it feel all the more sad that there was such a big pause in it mm. for so long. And it makes it really exciting that there's those opportunities are resurfacing now, thanks to the work of people like Erica. And, you know, it just, it's just mm. so great to be able to actually, like you're, like you were saying before, Erica, like, like tell those kinds of stories without having to worry about, the repercussions in the same way. Mm -hmm. Well, if I can just quickly add that, you know, one of the things that drew a lot of the Canadian researchers to psychedelics in the first place was this idea that they could somehow help to trigger a chemically inspired empathy, that you could have a window into a version of madness, a psychosis initially, they thought, um, but even could change your perceptions in such a way that you might actually have some insight into how somebody else felt. So empathy. And I think that's part of what we try to model in the book as well, by peppering it with individual case stories of real people with, I just want to emphasize, fake names. Uh, we're not telling someone's story and revealing the privacy, but we do have uh, very fake, made up names. very, very fake names. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but they are real people whose whose stories are what what bring life to those examples. But we really wanted to sort of bring those out in in um, in rich ways so that you that readers could empathize with the plights of the people going through these and, and perhaps even with the uh I was going to say physicians, but physicians and therapists and sitters and the various colorful characters. Yes, we'll put them in quotation marks. Uh, if you read the book, you'll find out why that's in quotation marks. But um, the the various people who are involved who are really sort of striving to come to some understanding of what is the core of human suffering and how can we, you know, do we need to fix it or do we need to empathize with it? Do we need to understand or change? And I think that's part of uh, that that empathy that we wanted to put on display as well. Um, it's interesting that you both brought up the characters and the individual stories because I mean 
the most compelling part of this book is the characters. We've got, uh, you know, the uh, Aldous and uh, his wife, um, Huxley, like that there and there. Of course, the captain, there's no more fascinating or wacky character than him. Um, I mean, it felt like it could have been a miniseries. Like you just like because it was so character driven in that way, it was like I just you'd you could imagine these people in your mind and the bizarre meetings they were having, having. And, um, but what was most important to you in capturing the people involved in, in Hollywood hospital and the challenges around that, because you are dealing with people who are deceased. Um, you can't necessarily go have conversations with them. So you're re relying on, uh, other people's memories and, uh, the written records. So, you know, what was that like for you to capture these such, I mean, some people are more wild than others, obviously. Um, what was that like for you? Erica has spoken to some of them before, like when they were alive. So that was obviously hugely helpful. And she would sometimes toss out a random anecdote when I would be writing about somebody that I'd never met before. And she would be like, well, when I talked to him, he kind of said this and that. And I would be like, right. You've actually spoken to some of these people. Like, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah, that was, that was always a, a nice, <laughs> nice reminder that, yeah, that you've encountered some of them. Yeah, I, I did not meet Captain Trips. Uh, I think that that would have been memorable. Um, but the advantage that I had, too, is in addition to having met or at least spoken on the phone with some of them, um, you know, from a long time ago, I uh, I have collected a lot of correspondence and I've been through lots and lots of correspondence files. So, you know, it doesn't come through in the book in terms of like, you know, my description of the trees. But thanks to Jesse's good editing, uh, you know, whittling down those trees. Um, you know, I have pretty clear impressions from Osmond and Hoffer in particular, because they're the two whose correspondence I've gone through quite thoroughly. Uh, we published a book on Aldous Huxley's correspondence with uh, Humphrey Osmond as well. So we have their kind of candid impressions. We have their text messages of the 1950s, right? Where they're like, you know, I met L. Ron Hubbard and he sure was an ass, you know, like the things that don't get published, um, except when we do this later. So we have those kinds of impressionistic uh, ways that some of the others saw Al Hubbard, for example, and even how that changed over time. They also thought he was really zany. So we felt we had, you know, the liberty to kind of play that up. And certainly that comes through even in the earlier, in his earlier career, I guess we'll call it as a double agent in Seattle. There's a local historian there who's also combed through the newspapers and is like, okay, it's okay. We, we've got zany on here. But then, you know, impressions change as he, you know, insists on bringing Catholic priests into the psychedelic environment. They're, you know, ease up, man. And so there are ways that we could work with that other material to help get an impression of how these characters actually changed and sometimes even distorted, I think, the reputation that was going out of Hollywood, particularly as people like Captain Trips would generate a lot of attention. And he is not representative and I, that surely comes through in the book that he's a he is on his own as a character. But but there are a number of people kind of working behind the scenes um, who kind of believe in this as a more neutral therapy. Yeah, well, I think that it was very fortunate. And uh, well, I mean, this is what at least drew me to it. I mean, like whenever in the past, like I've done work on, you know, pitching TV shows and, and, and things like that. And that's always the thing that you hear at every conference ever for for you know television is you know well it all starts with the characters and you're like yeah of course it does and and 
this just happened to have a preponderance of of really just interesting people and and i mean unsurprisingly the field of psychedelic research started to draw in some very interesting capital c characters uh you know um frank ogden who's in the book who you know was part of why the hollywood hospital records were still accessible many years later you know called himself whatever it was dr tomorrow and lived on a houseboat in the harbor and showed up as a patient at Hollywood hospital and liked it so much that he stuck around and became, you know, a, a trip sitter essentially. And then of course you have Al, Al Hubbard and I don't know, personally, that was what made it fun to me was looking at these people and, and, and like Erica said, you know, sort of hearing what others said about them. Um, and sometimes trying to frame the contradiction of how they would refer to themselves versus how others would describe them. Because I mean, I think there's a big gap for all of us and, our own self-image and and what others how others see us and what they think of us and it sort of feels a little bit like we're in an era now of of books and and prestige television that really allow us to look at nuanced sometimes contradictory characters and these when you were saying oh yeah that feels like it could be a miniseries it's, it's because those characters have those inherent contradictions and they have very obvious failings and foibles and you start to get to know them and and as erica said that you see how they start to change and how their interactions with each other change and you know how they start to become polarized and you know sometimes friends start to become enemies and like it just has all of this rich human detail that makes it about so much more than you know the names and dates and and, and places and that's always at least what draws me to wanting to write history books and like that's you know what all almost all the ones that I'd worked on previous to this were focused on, right. Were ones that were through the lens of a person and sort of, cause people don't really change that much. At least their motivations don't right? whether it's the 1700s or the, you know, the 1970s or, or now what drives us is still so similar, even though politics change and social mores change and what's, you know, considered acceptable changes. But that's fascinating too, is to look at a set of sort of universal human motivating impulses and how they play out against historical backdrops right because that's there's our impulses are still quite similar no matter you know but what surrounds us is different and then that changes how we behave and that you know informs all kinds of things from prejudice to um to intellectual arguments to all these things and so like finding the things that we can recognize in in people even if it was 40 50 60 100 years ago and you go oh yeah i've i've encountered somebody like that or in the case of somebody like Al Hubbard, you're like, wow, I've never encountered anybody like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask a little bit because this, uh, the Acid Room was shortlisted for the Roger Haig Brown Regional Prize, which is a unique prize because it's uh, it's about the understanding of BC and or Yukon. What do you think the Acid Room tells us about Vancouver and BC? Totally a Jesse question. <laughs> I was just going to ironically point it to you. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, what was interesting is, uh, yeah, we were shortlisted for a Saskatchewan Book Prize as well, um, which is kind of a cool thing that highlights because this book is, you know, Eric is from Saskatchewan, I'm from BC, and, the, you know, both of the research, uh, you know, teams were in Saskatchewan and BC. So it really not just to me showcased something about BC, but showcase something about like the BC Saskatchewan connection and how those provinces have kind of worked together over time. And on the BC side, which I'm you know much more qualified to speak to 
than the Saskatchewan side, it BC was a real like really on the forefront of uh harm reduction, which is kind of ironic considering that BC was also on the forefront of prohibition, um, the first anti-drug legislation in North America any like at all came out of Vancouver and came out of BC back in the early 1900s. And so there's been this very interesting kind of dramatic tension in in Vancouver, particularly around harm reduction. And it's odd to me that that's been the place I would have expected it to be, you know, somewhere in the U.S. or, you know, somewhere where you would imagine those attitudes were a little bit more strict. But it was a big it's been a big part of our of our history. And you still see that playing out now, right, in places like the downtown east side and that where you have a lot of harm reduction initiatives that were community initiatives or things like that. And, and you know, people who understand this stuff very well, butting up against a lot of people who don't and who are feeling very emotional about it and just want it to stop or go away. And the sort of back and forth there is very, very unique uh, to BC in good and bad ways. Um, but we have just for one reason or another, I think always had this collection of progressive, intelligent, open-minded people who have been willing to look at something like psychedelic therapy or or harm reduction in general and, and take a really common sense approach to how that relates to the community and it's obviously gotten a lot of pushback over, over the years but that's been something that's been happening here for a tremendously long time and i think that that's a really cool thing about bc because it's just not a thing that you would associate with with the province but that there's been this really like core group of committed progressive people who have really wanted to make big changes in something like drug policy and, and how that relates to the community um, more than a lot of other places. And I think, I mean, I think Saskatchewan has had that reputation as well. And that's probably why the provinces worked so well, at least back then, like at least in, you back know, then, in, yeah. Yeah, in the, in the forties and, and that, and, but it's cool on the BC side that that's still something that's happening and that we're having, you know, particularly in the last few years, like some real, level-headed conversations about how that works and I, and that really makes me very it's going to sound kind of cheesy but it it makes me very proud to mm. have you know seen that happen and I, I hope that that's something that continues to to happen as an outsider to bc i might just add that you know in addition to some of the conversations around harm reduction or thinking about people who use drugs as people first um it, you know even coming back before the formal introduction of the concept of harm reduction um one of the other things that tied these provinces together and and also localizes these questions at the same time is the is the sort of insistence on public health reforms and these two provinces although they did it a little bit differently we show in a small way, um, some of the ways that humanizing different aspects of pathological conditions, and that is very much on display in this book, whether it's people who drink too much, um, and I'm using that specifically in a non-medical way, because that's kind of what they were dancing around these ideas is, is this a medical problem? Is it a social problem? Is this a political problem? And do we need to actually invest resources in the kinds of facilities like Hollywood that give people insight into their behavior that may not necessarily change their behavior, but give them the will to see themselves in a different way. And then the choice to change their behavior if they want to or double down. And we see the doubling down in particular in some of the questions around gender identity and, uh, you know, 
sexual disorders as they are medicalized at the time, at a time when homosexuality is considered illegal and, and a disease. So I think by the choices of patients, we really try to bring that to the fore and show the consequences of investing in a public health reform culture for what that does for these diagnoses that are kind of on the edges. Are they medical problems? Are they brain dysfunctions? Are they, you know, a failure of the church? All of those kinds of questions are very much in flux in the 1950s. And here we see concrete examples of the consequences of putting people through the paces in a particular model. Yeah. And then what happens when they're able to exist outside of that? Right. Mm-hmm. And the conclusions that they're, you know, coming to, because, uh, I mean, in the example that Eric is referring to, as as we all know, but for the benefit of those who haven't read the book, um, there were people going to Hollywood Hospital for um, essentially conversion therapy, um, you know, being told by, you know, people in the early days like Timothy Leary saying, oh, yeah, well, LSD will make you not gay anymore. That was like the big and as the the handful of people who went to Hollywood Hospital with that intention discovered pretty quickly that was not the case because psychedelic drugs tend to have you confront truths about yourself or your world. And so you see these people in real time through these patient reports realizing that that's not something to be ashamed of and that it's a part of them and and sort of watching them as much as they could in, in, in the 50s and in that context sort of gain some measure of self-acceptance and it's it's just one of those things that i mean i didn't know anything about that angle at all until we were doing the the work and and erica you had a a grad student who wrote about that Mm -hmm. specifically and you'd sent me the their essay on it and i remember just being absolutely gobsmacked by how by that and when we talk about stories with you know a sort of beginning middle and end you can you can just see this people arriving because patients write um what their hopes are you know they would they would write these little you know they'd have the night before to kind of you know meditate on essentially on what they were there for and and what their their goals were and you know they would write about their past and you know the questionnaire which we actually have at the back of the book is very very detailed and very you know it asks a lot of pretty probing questions and so and watching that and then seeing the conclusions that they would come to at the end of 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 this and how it had changed their outlook on themselves is just so fascinating especially mm-hmm. in an era when those really weren't conclusions that were comfortable for people to be drawing from mm-hmm. a society perspective right there was a lot the implications were a lot worse um and i mean it's it's interesting this is maybe a bit tangential but I feel like in, in conversation right now, at least amongst the circles that I run, run in about, about psychedelics and psychedelic therapies, you have these, you know, there's like a group of people who are maybe a bit evangelical about it, the sort of Al Hubbard's uh, of the world who sort of talk about this as like it's as a magic bullet. And I think, and what I hope we've communicated in the book is that that's not really the case. I mean, it, it's like a psychedelic drug experience, particularly when you have stuff to work through is is a, is tremendously beneficial and i can say this speaking from personal experience as well as from you know having done all the research in this book it's it's it can be one of the most valuable experiences you'll ever have and it can really it's it's a thing that is tremendously tremendously beneficial but it's not a magic bullet and a lot of people talk about you know and i've had these conversations from time to time with people who are like well you know yeah I, i've i've thinking i might i guess probably 
go on some antidepressants, some SRIs or whatever. Well, or, you know what, I think I'm just going to microdose or I'm going to, you know, have an acid trip and that'll solve the problem. And, and you're like, okay, well, no, it's, 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 it was always intended to be a tool in the toolbox. And you see that with some of these patients, they would go in and they'd have these experiences and then they would still correspond with their, you know, their, their doctors and things after that, because it provides a way of opening the door to then be able to utilize other tools and, mm -hmm. There's, you know, I feel like, especially in conversations about psychedelics, we lose the nuance often in these conversations. And so it's important that you see that it were, it was a really helpful piece of insight for people and something very, very valuable that they carry with them for often the rest of their lives, but that it is just another tool in the toolbox and a very valuable one. But anyway, <laughs> sidebar. <laughs> No, I think it's it's a uh, it's one of those things. My my partner works a lot in um, peer support for folks with mental illness, and and uh, it's it's one of those things he talks about a lot. With um, you know, you can't just zero in on one thing. It's not just about the the meds. It's not just about you know. You need to have all of the tools, and and as we know, even with pharmaceutical drugs, they're not always the the mm -hmm. cure all. So you know we can't treat anything as the magic bullet. We kind of need to look at all of it as, like you said, Jesse, tools we need for for wellness in various ways. Yeah, and it, it's I mean I, I get it. We're all looking for we're all looking for a shortcut when it comes to our mental health. I I, I understand that. I've done it too. You know, you just you don't when you're having issues be it depression anxiety be it what you know whatever body dysmorphia anything you want to you want the problem to be solved as quickly as possible so you'll spend a lot of time looking for these you know magic bullets wherever you can and and it's super tempting but you know that's always the the unsexy reality of of mental health is that it's you know it's a long process with a lot of different bits and pieces you know psychotherapy and you know sris and other kinds of things and you know then of course diet and exercise, you know, there's all these little bits and pieces that, you know, that contribute and psychedelics are again, a very valuable part of that, or they can be. Um, but there's, there's no easy way around it. And yeah, you, even it's funny in some of the patient stories, you'd see people who would come back, you know, several times for other, you know, psychedelic therapy sessions and, and, you know, it just depends because if they're not doing anything else, to help with the upkeep of their mental health and it's about as valuable as you would expect right it's you have to it has to anyway it has to be part of a part of a continuum i think that was jesse donaldson and erica dick their book the acid room the psychedelic trials and tribulations of hollywood hospital was a finalist for the 2023 roderick haig brown regional prize if you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.